Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, science coming at you, pow, right into your ear holes and into your brain. That's the way it wow, goes. Wow, feel, feel the power. Feel, feel, the, force. feel the power. Feel that, that science in your, in your, in your, um, in your cortex. Uh, my name is Chris, of course, and today I'm going to be talking about insect populations declining. I mean, we all know about the bees, the problem with the bees, but... Or is there a problem with the bees? Well... You know, people talk about the problem with the bees. Mm. And the question is, what about other insects? Mm. Yeah. Well, the short answer, um, spoiler alert, is that we don't really know, but there is good reason to be concerned. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But we'll get into that. Stu. I caught up with Dr. Peggy Kern from the University of Melbourne this week, who studies psychology, and they have been looking at the effect of social media on people's psychological states and whether social media is a good thing or a bad thing and it turns out that it's both well tell you what lost in science social media is a good thing you should totally get on our facebook page (laughs) and our twitter it is so good claire what are you doing today oh well i'm going to give everyone about eight minutes of food poisoning information not actual food poisoning i don't think you can give food poisoning through the radio Well, I can give food poisoning information through the radio. That's true. And I shall. There's been a new, well, a lot of buzz in the media about sushi and nematodes that you can catch from sushi. Oh, yeah, parasites in your sushi. I've seen this. Parasites in your sushi. And I'm I'm a little bit sick of all this media about that because I read the article and it's not as bad as everyone is making it out to be. So I thought I would talk about the real villains of food poisoning. Good. Stay tuned to hear what the real villains are. Excellent. Well, on with this incredibly compelling show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I'm talking about the decline in insect populations. Now, my interest in this, like it kind of stemmed from an offhanded comment about sparrows. Uh, the African or when? European sparrow. That's a swallow, you're thinking. Oh, yeah, it is yeah. true. Yep. So, look, I may have mentioned before, but I regularly take part in a survey of birds on Long Mary Creek in Melbourne. Uh, oh. Yeah. What's uh, that called? Is that with BirdLife Australia? No, it's just with the Mary Creek Management Committee or oh. Friends of Mary Creek. Great. It's quarterly. Can um, people get involved in that? They can. They can Google appropriately. I might put a link on the on the website. Great idea. Anyway, at the last survey, which was took place earlier in May, someone made a comment about how there are fewer sparrows around than there used to be. Of course, we then went on to see a whole bunch of them sitting there on the wire. So I don't know. <laughs> You found the, the theme the, you of found the, nest. the theme of data and science is going to be a bit of a you know a bit of a theme in this story. Uh, but anyway, they looked this up. This, I looked this up to see whether this was actually a thing, and um, I couldn't find any good information on sparrow numbers in Australia. But there has definitely been a decline observed in Europe and the UK. Now, sparrows are not an Australian native bird, are they? No, they are introduced. Right. It, in fact, um, there was one theory that the uh, sparrows in Australia actually came from India rather than Europe. Huh. But yeah, in Europe and the UK, they have. Decreased. I said Europe and the UK because they're now two different things. Um, 
Greater London has, in fact, lost 70% of its sparrows between 1994 and 2001. Wow. 70%. Populations do seem to be slightly bouncing back in the past three or four years, but they are still on the red list of threatened species in the UK. Sparrows. 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 Yeah. The, the, the mice of the air. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the exact reason isn't known, but there was a paper that was published in the Journal of Animal Conservation in 2008, and it observed that sparrow chicks in some places were dying of starvation due to a lack of insects for food. And this hasn't shown to be proven to be the cause everywhere in every location. There has been subsequent research that found that if you feed the chicks insects, it helps boost their numbers. So it is likely that this decline in the insect populations is a factor contributing to the decline in sparrow populations. And it's not just sparrows, it turns out. There is also, in both Europe and North America, there have been declines in other insect-eating birds like larks, swallows, and swifts. I saw mm. this mentioned in an article that was recently published in the magazine Science, which also then talks about the windshield phenomenon. Okay, so basically... Please tell us what the windshield phenomenon is. Is, is that just birds flying into the windshield? No, it's insects, bugs. Ah. Basically, essentially the observation, everyone goes like, oh, you know, a few decades ago, like you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people used to have to always clean insects mm. off their car windscreens. Um, they don't do that anymore. Do we have smaller wind, windscreens? Well, one theory of, is that we have more streamlined cars, more dynamic mm. cars. But, you know, there were some streamlined cars back in the day and there also are some boxy cars still around today. Yeah. So that's not a, you know, universal thing. But also this is just an anecdote as well. Like, yeah. It's not data. But it's just something you kind of think about it going, yeah, that used to be a thing, insects all over the windscreen. Mm. Yeah, what, what happened and, and, to that? And in the, uh, in the radiator grill too. Yeah, you get yeah. insects all caught up, caught up in there and you have to yeah. clean the radiator out. Not so common these days, no. no. But again, this is not real data. In fact, we don't really have good solid data on total insect numbers because just about nobody has, has thought to keep a track of it. You have to Just about? This. Just about. I'll get to that. Okay. See, but the thing is, insects generally also don't get much attention in terms of conservation. Uh, and even if they do, you think about things along the lines of biodiversity and which are the threatened species. And um, we don't often think about conservation in terms of abundance, especially for mm. species that aren't considered threatened. But we think about it, what will have a bigger impact on the environment? Is it going to be extinction of a single rare species or losing most of our common species? Mm. Now, there, there is... You're quite right, Claire. There is. Um, there are a few groups that have been um, tracking insect abundance. There's one group in particular called the Krefeld Entomological Society, which is based in Germany. They've been tracking insects at more than 100 nature reserves in Western Europe since the 1980s. Now, some of their older sites, and there's one in particular they first measured in 1984, they've observed drops of nearly 80% in the number of insects, which is a big number. 80% is a big drop. And it's got to have an impact, you'd think, not only for birds like your sparrows that feed on the insects, but also for plants as well, say, because the bees, which the honeybees we talk about and, you know, looking at their decline in numbers and everyone gets alarmed about that, they're not the only pollinators out there. There are also bumblebees, there are wasps, there are hoverflies, and there are other insects that actually do pollination. So it is a concern. Now, since these first observations, they have expanded their monitoring program, but unfortunately can't yet go back in time and set up monitoring stations where you didn't have them before. So kind of we can expand the program now and track things into the future, but can't really see how much things have changed in the past without having started the program. So it's not really clear how widespread the problem is. There was, though, a review published in 2014 also in the journal Science, which combined the studies that were available worldwide. Well, they reported a 45% drop in invertebrate populations, including insects, in the past four decades. So that's Whoa, quite large by itself. That's huge. Now, 
One of the big culprits that often comes up in conservation is habitat loss. And so trying to think what the causes are here. Um, they do mention this is a possibility in the, in the science article, but it's not clear with the areas we're talking about how much change has happened in those areas. The oldest site that I mentioned, that was in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia, um, which I looked up. It's actually seen a decline in its human population in the past couple of decades. So, you know, it's hard to say there's going to be, there's been increased urbanisation there when there's actually a declining human population. And also we're talking about nature reserves, which the whole point is to preserve habitat. But, you know, they've got other things. You know, you've got there's changes in agriculture, which is, you know, more monoculture kind of um, crops, kind of complicates the issue, may affect things. And, yeah, we know that habitat is usually a big factor in these kind of puzzles. But then there are other, the other usual culprits people come up with. And, of course, they do mention the neonicotinoids, the pesticides that everyone likes to um, gang, up on. gang up on. Again, though, we're talking here about populations in nature reserves. And these pesticides, they are water-soluble. They have been found next to treated fields. But it's not clear how much could have spread to these nature reserves where they're doing measuring the insects. Um, and there are no doubt many other theories, same as there were for the sparrows when I looked at them. But until we have more data, it's very difficult to say what is the actual cause. And it's also very difficult to answer the other big question that you might be wondering is what's happening in Australia? I know, I was wondering that. Yeah. Now, I mentioned bees in the introduction earlier, the whole thing of colony collapse disorder that's affecting bees. We don't even know whether that's really occurring in Australia much because there isn't a nationwide survey of bee colonies Mm. in Australia. So kind of anecdotal information for Australia, we, we don't really know because there isn't a big widespread survey. And if we don't know about bees, which are so economically important, how much do you think we know about the other insects? Very, very little. Very little, yeah. <laughs> so, look, I guess the good news, you want to put a good spin on it, it's that if we don't know, no news is good news in that sense. Like, without data, we can't assume that there is a decline, and so it's not necessarily a bad situation. Any anecdotes about windshields are just anecdotes in the end. And not all the sites in this European survey saw such huge reductions as the ones that I mentioned. And also, because we don't know the cause, it's kind of a bit early to take any action because you can't really change something if you don't know what the problem is. But the other thing I guess I want to flag is, as well as this maybe early days in a possibly larger problem, just to think about how conservation works and whether abundance is as important or is a, you know, a thing to be considered alongside isolated species extinctions. And you know, we need to keep an eye on the common things as well as the rare ones. Social media is something of a new thing. I have got Dr Peggy Kern, who's a senior lecturer at the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne, and she's going to tell us a little bit about research she's been involved in into social media. Peggy, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. As I said, social media is a relatively new thing. I mean, we've had media for many centuries, I guess. Um, And we've had top-down broadcast media for about the last century with radio and things like that. But this interactive social media is quite a new phenomenon which sort of takes people away from each other and yet connects them in other ways which they haven't really been able to do before. What sort of research has been done into the effect of that on people's mental state? Yeah, so it's a topic that is of a lot of interest to people, and there's a growing number of studies in this area. As it has come around so rapidly, things are changing almost faster than we can actually adjust to it. So it's a space that's going to keep changing. I've done multiple studies focused on social media. One of the ones that we did came out just earlier this year was a systematic review 
of 70 different studies that were looking at links between social media and well-being and depression. It's kind of focused on that negative health and also the, the, the good health as well. And the results were actually surprising to us, and I think to a lot of people, is that we actually saw that for many people, it was actually related to well-being. So it seemed like the main things coming out of it is that the impact of social media actually depends a lot on how you actually use it. So how you use it and how it makes you feel as well. We do see that for those who are, suffer more from depressive symptoms or report more, more depressive symptoms, that was actually correlated with higher use. But there was a lot of people, too, that, that reported higher well-being through the use. And they, they would report things like it helps them connect with others and, and feel socially connected. We saw especially that those who struggle more with social phobias and whatnot, it offers a way to actually connect with others without actually having to have so much of those in-person interactions. So in that sense, it's almost a medium that can actually foster some of those, those relationships that otherwise would not be happening. With those people, is, that, is the removal of the face-to-face component of the interaction, does that relieve sort of social anxiety for some people? Is that, is that kind of what you found? Well, we didn't actually look at directly at why you see those effects. And so we're just looking at the overall effects, but that most likely is the case. And so if interacting with others face-to-face actually creates a lot of anxiety for you, then that element of getting to know people, having that support, communicating with others within that safe environment actually could be beneficial. Um, now, there is that question of, is it, is it actually stopping them from going out and making those face-to-face connections? But at least it, it provides some way of connecting with others when perhaps they might not actually be able to do it in other ways. That's, that's a, I guess that's a positive uh, example of how social media is helping some people with, uh, yeah. with their social interaction. Are there any negative sort of examples that you've come across where people don't get a benefit, that it's actually not, not a good thing for them to be using it? Yeah, so we saw several of those. So, so number one is feelings of jealousy. So, you know, there's a lot of images that are put out on social media. People manage that quite a bit. And if there's a sense of sort of not being as good as others um, or feeling the sense like everyone's happy, everyone's better off than me, that actually undermines well-being. So that sense of comparison and feeling, well, others are better off, even though it actually might be an image that people are putting up there. So that's one way that we see that lack of benefit. Also, there's the question about amount. So a lot of these studies that, that we reviewed were looking at the era when social media started coming about. Um, so you're looking at you know, the beginning of Facebook on up over the past few years. And so people have been increasing how much time they're spending there. We saw some evidence that those spending a lot of time on there, there might be some sort of almost like this addictive nature that that's actually undermining well-being. We don't know what that, like if there's a sweet spot of this is too much or this is too little. We don't know what that tipping point might be, and it's probably different for different people. But I think it, that's actually one of the growing concerns that we'll actually have to consider, especially as amounts actually have been increasing 
each year that we go, and people are spending more and more time on there. So we'll have to look at the implications of that. I guess um, even though it is new, it is also still changing. I mean, when Facebook started, I guess most people probably used it on a desktop computer or a laptop or something like that, whereas now it's a very mobile friendly social media outlet and the same with things like Twitter and those sorts of things as well yeah. is that people access them from their phones so they're not necessarily sitting at home in front of a computer they're, they're out and about but still using the social media so that I guess it'd be interesting to see how that develops as far as um, you know how, how much is too much time to be spending if you're only spending a few seconds every couple of hours on there or compared to what maybe used to be sitting in front of a screen for, for hours at a time. It's... Yeah, and, it, and it's a question about how that's actually going to go because in one sense you could say you're just getting on there for a few seconds every so often, except we also see a lot of young people. They, I think that the average is they go within every 15 minutes they're checking a lot or a lot less, and so it's actually spending a lot of time on there. So there's almost this lack of connection, of disconnection, we do see benefit of unplugging at times and just kind of getting away from the constant onslaught of everything. Young people, though, will also report that it's a way that they feel that they connect with others and, and it's a way that they feel that they can actually best communicate. And so I think, again, it's sort of how it actually makes you feel and some of those patterns with engaging with it that I don't even think we know what is going to be healthy and what is unhealthy at this point. It's going to be an open question. Sounds like it's going to be an open question for quite a long time, and I guess it's going to keep evolving um, as technology changes our lives in all different ways. But um, it's really interesting to hear some of the some of the actual result of real world research on uh, on the effect of these things, because every, everyone does seem to have an opinion about whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. And it sounds like, as with a lot of things in life, it seems very subjective and it's not all good and it's not all bad. That's exactly it. And I I think people want to jump to that conclusion of either it's this is the best thing since sliced bread or this is evil. But you know what? There's actually probably for some it's going to be good, for some it's going to be bad. And social media or these other technologies are here to stay. They're going to keep evolving, changing platforms and things like that, but they're very much a part of our lives. And so I think moving towards finding how we can use the technology for good and to benefit us and benefit others, that's going to be valuable as opposed to just throwing it away and saying, well, that's a bad thing. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it's it's not really surprising to find that people are different and how they react to things <laughs> is, is different according to the individual but we've run out of time for our interview. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Peggy Kern, on Lost in Science. And we'll maybe be in touch again soon via social media to, uh, to stay in touch with ongoing research in this area. Sounds great. Look forward to it. I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. So this week you might have heard some news about doctors warning us that sushi can potentially 
gives all sorts of parasites and we should watch out for sushi. Maybe we should even stop eating sushi. Did you, either of you see this in the media? I did see this, and I think I ate sushi that very day. Yeah. We, we are talking, we are talking the raw fish, the raw fish variety of sushi here. Yes, the raw fish oh, okay. variety. Yeah, so sushi, sashimi. Uh, anyway, so the warning came after doctors in Portugal found and treated a man, a 32-year-old man to be exact, who had severe upper gut pain, uh, vomiting, and fever for about a week. Anyway, the doctors did some tests on him and apparently the area behind his ribs was quite tender. Then it was revealed that he'd eaten sushi recently and so the doctors suspected he might have what is called anisakiasis, which is a nematode or a round worm. Mm. So this is sort of like a two or three centimetre worm or a worm larvae. Okay. Sort of like a roundworm that, yeah, parasitic to a lot of different different animals, have different species of roundworms. So he worm. got worms from eating sushi. So he, he got worms from eating this raw fish sushi. Right. Yes. Anyway, so this roundworm lives in the flesh of undercooked or raw fish. So once the doctors suspected this, they did an endoscopy. They stuck um, a camera down his gob. Yeah, yeah. So it's a long tube with a camera on the end. Mm-hmm. They put through the gastrointestinal tract into the stomach. Anyway, this camera shot some great footage of this larval-like worm just hanging out attached to his gullet <laughs> with a very inflamed sort of gastrointestinal lining. Um, mm. I can see you squirming over yeah, there, Chris. Did all. you did you watch the video? Is yeah. there a video? No, available? no, it isn't a video. <sighs> it is is a camera shot though. It's okay. sort of like, hey, wormy, get your best angle type type thing. Anyway, so they removed the larvae, and with what doctors describe as a special kind of net. I don't know what sort of net this would be. A gut net, some sort of net, like they just fished it out of his throat with a special kind of it was net. Just, just sitting there, it was next to the fish tank, and they just <laughs> yes. grabbed it and scooped up all the worms. Yeah. Anyway, the man's symptoms cleared up straight away. Oh, good. Yes. Then, the case of this Portuguese man with a nematode throat was published in BMJ Case Reports, and since then, it has just got a huge amount of publicity. A whole lot of news agencies have been jumping on the story, and everyone's now worried that. You know, every time they eat raw fish or eat sushi, that they're going to get a nematode larvae at the back of the throat. Right. Yeah. Is this the only time it's happened? Well, it happens in Japan fairly infrequently, but it does happen. Okay. And this is, you know, the first time it's happened in Portugal, maybe, but it's like mm. one instance. And, you know, I think the fact that everyone's saying, what, get worried about sushi, is a little bit fishy. The, uh, Zing! That is that is yep. the the raw news from Claire right that's, there. That's that's Bill Shorten levels of humour right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, you're, I on, mean... a, you're on a roll, a California roll, <laughs> oh, not a Nori roll. Uh, I mean, okay, all right. I I get it. It's it's gross. Nematodes in the throat are gross. But doctors have actually responded to the this article. And this coverage saying it's hyperbole and the chances that you're going to catch a nematode from your sashimi in Australia are actually pretty low. Okay. Um, Which is why I want to spend the remainder of this story talking not about the nematode, but about the more dangerous living things lurking in your food that will make more people in Australia sicker for longer. That is, of course, the bacterial food poisoning villains of this world, the real food poisoners. Okay. Not the nematodes. 
Um, so let's start with the worst one of all, one bacteria that's responsible for many food poisonings around Australia and the world, Bacillus cereus. And this bacteria is... Really serious. Yeah. Anyway, this is a spore-producing bacteria and it has two different toxins, actually. It's like a double whammy. It's got two types of artillery. It has one that causes vomiting and another one that causes diarrhea. So you could go either way with this bacteria. (laughs) So cooked foods can become contaminated with the toxins when they're not stored at the correct temperature. That is, hot foods need to be kept above 60 degrees, while cold foods need to be kept below 5 degrees. So either leave it in the bain-marie or put it in the fridge. Put it in the fridge. Yeah, don't leave it on the, on the counter over, overnight especially because Bacillus cereus loves starchy food, so especially rices and pastas as well as starchy vegetables. So what you're saying is like room temperature rice, it yeah. could be dangerous. The kind of rice that you might find in, oh, uh, sushi. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Oh, my God, unless it's kept in the fridge. Yeah. Which, which normally most of those most of those cabinets are refrigerated. Yeah, so. and they're not there that long. Yeah. No. yeah, yeah. But let's take a closer look at rice because you know this is this is something people don't think about when they associate mm. you know think about food poisoning. You think raw chicken, raw chicken and fish and, 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 yeah, and fish yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, but rice is the ultimate food source for Bacillus cereus. It's got a lot of starch and it's got a lot of surface area to create spores. So I mean, you know, cooked rice has a lot of surface area and it's got a lot of little pockets where the Bacillus cereus can hang out. So is is cereus spelt C E R E U S? It is. Yeah. So it's a like cereal. cereal. Yeah. Okay. It's a cereal loving Bacillus. So it's this a cereal is, killer. So this is not like your um. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So this is not like your salmonella, is it? Or... I will get to salmonella later. Well, I just wonder, why have I never heard of this Bacillus cereus if it's like the most common one? Why does everyone talk about other things? Pe- pe- um, I think I think food poisoning from rice is one of the most common forms of food poisoning. Yeah, and it's is. also just one of the most under... It's just not talked okay. about. I think, I think maybe because uh, it doesn't... Maybe the food poisoning doesn't last as long mm. as some of the... Worse ones like okay. salmonella or it's not as dangerous maybe. Um, but, yeah, so food safety guidelines in Australia say spores can actually survive the cooking of rice and then they can start reproducing after the rice is cooked from that period of time. So this is why you shouldn't leave cooked rice out of the fridge after cooking. You should put it to that below five degrees in your fridge and then don't leave it in your fridge for longer than two to three days because being in the fridge still doesn't stop the growth of the spores. It just slows them down. So, you know, this villain is, you know, take no, <laughs> take no prisoners. Villain. Yeah. And briefly, I talk about salmonella because it is something that we have all heard about. Now, can you only get it from salmon? No, you can get it from raw eggs, milk, poultry, red meat, unwashed salads. It's quite common in kids under five. Um, don't eat them. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, dear. Um, the incubation period is six to 72 hours. Right. And that's another point. Like, people think that they're only going to get food poisoning an hour or two after they consume something. But some of mm. these bacteria have got huge lag periods, some up to sort of like a week or oh. something like that. So, But, yeah, salmonella poisoning um, up to 72 hours after ingestion. And the symptoms are, yeah, diarrhea, fever, yeah, abdominal cramps, vomiting that can last up to seven days. So, yeah, obviously there are many 
other bacteria bacteria responsible for food poisoning. That's just a couple. In Australia, there are 4.2 million cases of food poisoning every year, which is certainly more than our little nematode in the sushi making people sick. So, yeah, I guess my take-home message here is keep your eyes on the real bacterial villains. Don't be swayed by the sexy, disgusting worms. It's the bacteria that'll get you in the meantime. Okay, that is it for another thrilling episode of Lost in Science where we've heard about social medias um, and whether they're good or bad for you. And, of course, they are some sometimes good and sometimes bad, depending on who you are. What a surprise. Yeah. And who are you, Claire? You have told us that, that uh, you're the kind of person who tells us about food poisoning, and that's a good, well, not a good thing, but it's good that you told us. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. you know, don't, like, don't worry. Don't worry about the parasites. Yeah. Don't believe the hype. Yeah. Keep your eyes on the real. Yeah, the real the villains. The real villains. Yeah, yeah. And just... Don't be alert, but not alarmed about the insects. And maybe think twice before you squish them, I suppose. is perhaps the, That's not the moral of the story, but that's just something <laughs> to think about. Anyway, Lost in Science, it is recorded at these studios here in 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. You can email us. What's our email address, Stu? Lostinsci at gmail.com. That is correct. And we are also on... Twitter. Twitter, we're Lost in Science 1, I think. Is that correct? You were going to say that? Yeah. And we're on Facebook, Facebook, where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. 3CR. Yes. And you can probably also look up our podcast on your various podcast services. Where actually, if you do that, it'd be good like to give us a nice rating and review us so that, you know, it makes us look good. That'd and be great. And helps other people find us on searches and that sort of thing. Yeah, get us, get us up those science podcast rankings. Um, you can also find our website. If you go to 3cr.org.au slash Lost in Science, you can look at all our past episodes and get links and those sort of things. Or you can listen to us on demand, or you can just tune into the radio at the same time next week when Stu, Claire, Manisha, and Chris will get... Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.